Slow Show by Mia Ugly Chapter 5 Babe, we both had dry spells, hard times in bad lands. I'm a good man for you. I'm a good man. Josh Ritter, good man. Hard times, an interlude. 1978, Hartlepool, nine years old. Avery has almost made it to the docks, where he will stow away on a ship to North America and make his fortune in the West and never be seen in stupid Hartlepool again. And then they'll all be sorry. When a heavy hand lands on his shoulder. Where do you think you're going? Avery knows his dad's voice, but he knows the weight of his dad's hand even more. Knows the smell of oil and sweat and lager. He'd know who found him before the man said a word. What the hell are you doing out here alone, eh? Nor what time it is, nor how worried your mum is. Let me go! Avery jerks away, but his dad hauls him back. Look at the state of you. What's that? What have you got? One end of the scarf is already in his dad's hands, and Avery struggles to unwind from it so that his dad doesn't choke him by accident, or on purpose. What's this? This your mum's bleeding scarf? Nicked it, did ya? I want it to look like Cary Grant. Avery snarls as his dad pulls the rest of it off, the pretty yellow silk stained and ruined now. And it's not Avery's fault, it's not. Cary Grant? Oh, the... there's mud all over this. Or is that... Avery turns his head away quickly while his dad steps closer, looming over him like one of those huge trees in California. Avery's seen pictures of them, seen them in books. He's going to go there some day, see them in real life, whatever the boys in school say. What's going on? You fighting with the Garrity lad? That it? I'll have a word with his father, so help me. No, Avery says, hot with pain and anger. Go on, turn your face, let me see. Avery lifts one hand to his cheekbone where he can feel the bruise swelling to life. It was the only rock that actually managed to hit him. Evan and his stupid gang have terrible aim. Let me see, I said. Sighing dramatically, and he knows when he's being dramatic, Miss Davies tells him nearly every class. Avery drops his hand, turns his face towards his dad. His dad is silent for a moment. Then he whistles low between his teeth. <sighs> that from one of those bloody Garretties. Avery doesn't answer. If his dad talks to Evans, it will just make everything worse. Could have got your eye? His dad continues, shaking his head. I've a mind to go round theirs. Don't, Avery says. Please don't. His dad folds his arms, looks at Avery like he's an alien or something, someone from outer space that doesn't know anything about the world they live in, has to be told how to eat and breathe and tie his shoes. Avery hates when his dad looks at him like that. They threw rocks at me, he spits, and pushed me in the mud, called me names. He can't repeat them. It might make him sick to say it out loud. He shouldn't have got caught alone after school, but it had been that sort of autumn day that you want to linger in, 
and Avery had bought that book of T.S. Eliot from the library and couldn't stop reading it. Out loud, but in whispers, just to hear the words singing in the air. What seas, what shores, what grey rocks and what islands? That book was stomped on and ground into the mud now. He didn't even have the chance to go back for it. Mrs Poole is going to be so angry, she'll probably ban Avery from the library for a month, and he didn't even do anything. It's not fair. I'll leave them alone. I don't hurt anyone. Why have they got to be so awful to me? Tears are prickling at his eyes, and it's unbearable. His dad hates crying, and Avery tries to blink the tears back, swallow around the lump in his throat. He waits for his dad to yell at him, waits for the cuff to the back of his skull. But instead, his dad just shakes his head, runs a hand through his thinning blonde hair. Ya know, me and your mam think. His dad coughs a bit, looks slightly queasy. <clears throat> we think the world of you, all right? Avery holds his breath and hopes this moment is over soon. He never knows how to bear kindness when it comes from his quiet, quick-tempered father. You're too bright for the likes of us, by far, with your books and that. Things you read. Don't think I've read anything half as smart. He nudges Avery with his elbow gently. Avery flinches away. We know you'll be all right in the end. But just, maybe for now, you could just try a bit harder. To be like the other kids. Avery's mouth opens in protest. I don't want to be like them. They're bullies and they're goddamn liars and... Oi! The cuff to the head comes now. Don't ever let your mam hear you swear and she'll beat that out of you quick enough. Then she'll come after me for being a rotten influence. Avery rubs the back of his head, scowling at the unfairness of the whole ugly world where kids can throw rocks at him, but he isn't even allowed to swear. What do you reckon? His dad's voice softens again. Think of it like you're acting. Like you're one of those posh blokes in the films you like so much. Oh, that is an interesting idea. Avery hasn't thought about it that way before. He likes acting, loves movies even more than his books. He's seen Death on the Nile three times at the cinema, went round doing odd jobs for the neighbours until he could earn the 45p it cost. Like? Peter Ustinov, he asks, thinking it over. His dad pulls a face. Yeah, maybe. Which one's that? He's Poirot. Fine, like your Poirot. What do you think? Avery thinks that it doesn't seem right. Why should he have to pretend to be someone different while Evan and Jack and Will get to carry on being awful? He tries to put himself in Evan's piggy little mind. Imagine seeing the world through eyes squinting narrow with hatred. It feels awful. Feels like everything's got smaller around him. But the bruise on his cheek feels awful too, throbbing sharply in time to his heartbeat. The roll of a lifetime, eh? Fitting in with the rest of them. Maybe it will be a good challenge. A test. Avery wants to be an actor one day, wants to look like Cary Grant and kiss, and kiss, uh, Miss Catherine Hepburn, right? 
and wear silk scarves and cream-coloured coats and arrest anyone who throws his books in the mud. You give it a try and we'll just... We'll find a new scarf for your mum, all right? I'll get rid of this old thing. She won't even notice it's gone. Or we'll say the dog got at it. Okay. Avery would try. Try fitting in. Try being just like the rest of the boys in his class. If he wants to be an actor, this is a way to start. Good lad. Come on then. Your mam's doing chips for tea. Might not be any left by the time we get there. His dad throws an awkward arm around Avery's shoulders, pulls him close in a rare display of physical affection. And we'll get something on that face of yours. Jesus wept. Social services is going to be after us. I see you in that state. Behind him, the setting sun is just hitting the horizon of the ocean, turning the whole world molten copper. For some reason, Avery likes the colour, likes the warm gold of it. The eyes of a snake holding him safe in its gaze. Avery lets himself get tugged along home. 1986, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, 17 years old. What do you fancy? Daniel asks him, looking at the posters lined up outside the theatre. Have you seen Highlander yet? Sid and Nancy? Well, it's going to be dark, mate. You know how it ends. Maybe the ending will be different this time, you don't know. Daniel grins at him, clearly having made his mind up. Come on. Sex Pistols, Gary Oldman. Fine, all right, but I'm starving. I'm getting popcorn or Monster Munch or something. You poor thing, I can see right through you. Piss off. Wasting away you are. Daniel smacks Avery's stomach, an absolute prat, and still the only boy in the entire sixth form worth half a damn. Not that Avery will ever let anyone know that. He's on friendly terms with everybody now, though he keeps mostly to himself. He buries his head in books, gets his work done, doesn't get involved in theatre or music, doesn't call out in class. He fits in, even sometimes kicks the ball around after school with the Garrity brothers, doesn't mention the time they almost took his eye out with stones. It's exhausting some days fitting in. Avery comes home from school feeling like he's been running a marathon, and hasn't stopped running for almost ten years. But around Daniel, it's not like that. It's different, somehow. Daniel loves films too, almost as much as Avery does. And they save their money when they can, get tickets to whatever's playing in Hartlepool. It's never much. For his birthday last year, Daniel bought him a book of the best film speeches and monologues, and Avery memorised them in secret. Fitting in, right? recited them in front of his mirror with the perfect RP accent. He's got a whole host of accents under his belt, but is still working on his American, and gets a bit nasally, sounds like he's trying too hard. Being around Daniel is easy most of the time. There are times when it's not easy at all. Times when Avery sees Daniel across the footy pitch and something hot and ugly starts rising up in his throat, like he might bite something or sick up on himself. There's this hunger in him, and he doesn't know what it's a hunger for. But sometimes he wants to eat the entire world, swallow it whole. I think Harrison Ford's going to win Best Actor this year, Daniel says as they wait in line for tickets. 
You think? Bet you anything. They both loved Witness, even though the ending made Avery cry. Maybe that'll be you some day. Hand bloody solo. Avery shakes his head. Don't be an arse. It's true. You should move to Hollywood after school, or to London. Audition for one of those posh theatre schools. <laughs> right? With all the money I've made sweeping up at Mum's salon? Yeah, that'll happen. I'm sure they've got scholarships and that, for wretched unfortunates like us. Daniel raises his hand to his forehead dramatically. Arms for the poor, governor. Stop it, Avery says, trying not to laugh. People are going to think you're an escaped lunatic. I escaped from Hartlepool, so it's near enough. Daniel's mum is as strict as anything, but sometimes she's all right with the two of them catching a train to Newcastle, seeing a matinee, mucking about in town. Avery had tried to do some homework on the ride up, but Daniel kept throwing tiny rolled-up bits of paper at him, and then Avery started throwing them back, and by the end, their train car looked like there'd been a bit of a blizzard in it. They get their tickets and Avery gets popcorn and a pack of spangles, and they disappear into the darkness of the cinema. This is another reason Avery likes the movies, the sense of being hidden away somewhere cool and dark and undiscovered. He's just another face in a sea of faces, lit up briefly by the screen. Fitting in so well, he's invisible. They sit way off to one side, the theatre's pretty empty, but Daniel's a bit of a chatterer, especially when the film is a bad one. And Avery gets so emotionally invested in the stories that his face does stupid things. Best keep a bit of a distance between the two of them in the well-mannered world. Would you like some of this? Avery offers the popcorn and Daniel shrugs him away. Nah, look at your nasty hands, they're all sticky. Avery licks his fingers into his mouth and Daniel immediately looks away, goes quiet. The lights are starting to dim, so Avery focuses on the screen. At some point during the film, not long into it, their arms end up sharing the armrest between them. Avery's not so much into the sex pistols and he finds himself distracted by Daniel's hand in the flickering light. He has big hands. Not like Avery's. Girls' hands, his dad used to say, and Avery would clench his hands into fists and shove them in his pockets. Daniel's hands are square, almost, broad-palmed, blunt-fingertipped. There's a bit of dark hair on the back of each knuckle. When it happens, Avery thinks the brush of contact is accidental. He shifts his hand back slightly so that it's not taking up as much space, but then... But then Daniel moves his hand again, so the edge of his palm just rests against Avery's. His skin is so hot it's going to leave a mark, a black ripple of skin that won't heal right, that will stay on Avery's hand until he dies. People will ask him what happened, and he won't know what to say. Someone touched me with skin as hot as a newly filled kettle, a lit burner on the stove, a branding iron. Avery should move his hand then, but he doesn't. If he yanks his hand away in panic, Daniel might feel weird about it. Avery looks away, doesn't want to embarrass him. Daniel probably hasn't even noticed. 
Then Daniel curls his ring finger. The tip of it brushes over Avery's skin, and Avery looks over immediately. He watches their hands there in the blue light of the theatre, watches Daniel's ring finger straighten and curl again, feels it like a match being struck on his skin. Daniel is staring straight ahead, face completely blank. But his chest is rising and falling, Avery thinks, like he's breathing hard, as hard as Avery is breathing right now. As hard as the heartbeat that's pounding in Avery's narrow chest, like a punch to the breastbone every time. There are going to be bruises on his ribs if his heart keeps beating like this. Then Daniel looks over at him, and Avery feels like he could swallow the world. There's a wolf at the base of his spine, at his throat, great foaming jaws opening wide. I'll eat you whole. Avery tears his hand away. What are you... Don't touch me! He spits, and he gets up out of his seat, and he's gone. He's gone. Never sees the ending of Sid and Nancy. Doesn't know whether they both die or ride off in a flying car. Avery is out of the door of the theatre, walking, walking, and then running, and behind him he can hear Daniel's voice. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please don't tell anyone, Avery! Avery never rides the train to Newcastle again, never throws tiny rolled-up scraps of paper across a train compartment on his way to see a movie, and he never tells anyone. 1991 Bristol, 22 years old. There's a rap on the door to the gents where Avery is bawling his eyes out, hands over his face, snot dripping from his nose. He's a pitiful cliché of heartache. Something you'd see in a bad film, late-night television. Everything all right in there? A woman's voice calls through the door. Avery takes a shuddering breath. Another. Just... A moment. He wipes his face, swallows down the rest of his tears and straightens up in front of the dingy sink. Looks at himself in the mirror. It's worse than he imagined, but just as predictable. Our heartbroken protagonist stares at his reflection and sees a man he doesn't recognise. Who am I? he asks in a dramatic fashion, eyes swollen and red as fists. What have I become? and he probably breaks the mirror with his hand or something, but Avery isn't so far gone that he's lost his manners. "'Sorry if you're feeling a bit poorly, love, only I'm supposed to be mopping up in there,' the woman's voice continues. "'Almost closing time now.' Avery splashes water on his face, fully giving in to the drama. His dark brown hair makes his skin look even paler, he dyed it before he started at the Old Vic and has been keeping it up these past few years. Thought it would make him stand out a bit, look less like floor-to-ceiling beige wallpaper. It's a shoddy job he's done of it, though, dye staining the tips of his ears. Avery thinks he looks like a picture a child tried to colour. Black ears, red eyes, crayons smudged and going outside the lines. The, uh... Gentleman you came in with is gone, if that helps. The voice is extremely gentle, almost painfully so. Avery gives in and opens the door. Standing outside it is a woman a bit older than him, or perhaps a bit younger. 
It's difficult to tell with the amount of makeup she's wearing. She's got white blonde hair and pale blue eyeshadow and a colourful dress that's hanging off one shoulder. She's leaning on a mop and bucket like she might fall asleep there. Avery thinks she might have been behind the bar pulling pints earlier. He wasn't really paying attention, too busy fighting with his date, or whatever Harry was to him. Emphasis on the was. Oh, you're alive. Well done. The woman gives him a once-over and tuts. It's an extremely motherly sound for someone her age. But look at the state of you. Yes, well, Avery breathes, trying to laugh off the despair. He's a fucking actor, a good one, or old Vic wouldn't have taken him. It's fine, I, I'm fine, I, I'll be on my way. The woman just raises an eyebrow at him, then turns and shouts over her shoulder, Mags, will you lock up? She turns back to Avery, looks at him like he's a baby duckling. I'll put the kettle on. He ends up spending the rest of the night sitting at the bar drinking tea with a madwoman. Turns out it's a madwoman he's met before. You're one of those theatre kids. I knew it. I knew I recognised you. She poses with her arms up over her head, an exaggerated look of delight in her eyes. Remember? Like so? Ta-da! Avery shakes his head, only a little frightened. The stag do your friend had. What was his name? I came out of a cake. Vanilla fondant, I think. Lovely. No? Avery shakes his head again, though something's coming back to him. Some horrible blurry evening when he first started at school and was trying, was really trying. He had had a bit much to drink and had been dragged out with a couple of classmates and he seems to remember a giant cake more than anything. Well, I remember you. You were the one in the corner having a breakdown. Never seen anyone look so uncomfortable. She laughs, pats him on the shoulder like they're best friends. <laughs> Felt sorry for you. Poor thing. Yes, uh, quite. Each word he says feels like blown glass. So you work here and there and... I draw aside the veil every Thursday afternoon. Avery does not know what that means. And offer the occasional bit of intimate personal relaxation and stress relief for the discerning gentleman. The woman winks. Avery does not know what that means, either. All sorts, whatever I have to. I'm getting out of Bristol, aren't I? Moving to London one day. Going to make something of myself. Oh, me too. London is something Avery can talk about. London haunts his dreams at night. I mean, I want to go to London when school's done. Oh, I'm sure you could manage it. Must be well posh going to a fancy school like that. Not really. Um, that's the other thing he doesn't talk about. The thing he hasn't told any of his classmates. But this strange woman is so warm and shameless, it almost makes him feel less ashamed as well. I'm on scholarship. Otherwise there would be no possible way. It's a stroke of luck. I'm going to school at all, let alone... So you're a smart one. She clicks her teacup against his. Folks must be proud. 
Avery thinks of his dad, still quiet and quick-tempered and working in the mill. Thinks of his mum, fingers curled like strips of birch bark, early onset arthritis, and thinner and thinner and thinner every time he sees her. Well, it's really nothing, not that exciting. Come off it, course it's something, look at you. She traces her manicured nails over the rim of her teacup, stares into the steam like she's reading tea leaves. You know, I think I've seen you since that party as well. Been round here a time or two, haven't you? And always with some new fella. Avery can feel the colour of what little he has drain out of his face. The woman immediately reaches out, puts a hand on his. Hey, hey, don't look like that. I ain't bothered. It's all right. I only brought it up because well, I probably should just... Because I hate to see anyone wasting time on people that treat them badly. She squeezes his hand and Avery resists the urge to pull away from her, flail like a panicked, slightly drunk bird. Why'd you let them? Let them? Well, I don't. You really? Since moving to Bristol, Avery has had a series of, not relationships, flings, hookups, with the cruelest, most closeted, self-hating men he can find. No one has ever asked him about it before, because no one knows. He doesn't take them back to his flat. He doesn't even meet them in his part of town. He frequents dodgy, out-of-the-way pubs like this one, where no one recognises either of them, and he lets the men do what they like with him in bathrooms and alleyways, lets them kiss their contempt against his throat. They're generally pretty awful to him afterwards, so they fight and part ways, and Avery hates himself for a few weeks. Then he does the whole thing over again. Consistency. That's important. Why does it matter? He manages at last, once panic has stopped stealing his words from him. He knows what he is, what he wants, and he knows it can't happen. Shouldn't it? It's not like... It's nothing that's going to go anywhere. Nothing that means anything. Who cares how they treat me? I do. <laughs> you don't even know my name. What's your name, then, so I can care? The woman reaches up, takes off her long blonde wig, followed by a wig cap. She ruffles out a head full of matted red curls. There, that's better. I'm Tracy. And you are? When Avery doesn't say anything, she holds out her hand to be shaken. Go on, then. Took off my wig, didn't I? Avery's so shocked that he laughs, tears in his eyes and thorns in his throat. He takes her hand, shakes it. Avery. Avery fell. Ooh, just like Bond, James Bond. Tracy flutters her eyelashes at him. Fancy. The sun is coming up by this point, peeking between the shutters that Max pulled down at Tracy's barked request. Avery is more exhausted than he has possibly been in his life, but he's also had about eight cups of tea in the past five hours and won't be falling asleep any time soon. You want some breakfast? 
Tracy asks. The cafe down the road does good fry-up. Cheap as chips. What day is it? He can't quite recall. The room is getting fuzzy around its edges like an old photograph. I may have a class in a few hours. Well, got to have that brain food, I'm sure. She pats his shoulder again, and this time Avery doesn't fight the urge to flinch and run away from it. Casual, friendly touch is not something he's had all that much experience with. Perhaps he needs practice. Come on, then, Tracy says. I'll treat you, shall I, seeing as you're a starving artist? And Avery doesn't have it in him to say no to breakfast twice. So he says yes. 1998, London, 29 years old. The headlines are awful and everywhere. Anthony Crowley's homosexual scandal. Drugs, violence, men, Anthony Crowley's downhill spiral. Out of control, Anthony Crowley's parents grieve troubled son. The falling star keeps falling. Anthony Crowley arrested outside notorious gay bar in Soho. Avery doesn't know the man, but of course he knows of him. They've never met, though if we're being completely honest, Avery would have moved heaven and earth to have got the chance. He may have watched most of Anthony's films at some point in his twenties, even the early ones, the awful romantic comedies. Avery might still have a soft spot for the man's oddly jagged profile, the slant of his mouth, the soft lick of carnelian hair that falls into his eyes. Bit of a celebrity crush. Fine, everyone has them. And really it was Anthony's talent that was the most compelling thing, Avery could certainly claim that the admiration was purely professional. Whatever darkness the man has buried just below the surface of his skin gets dredged up when he acts, and it's transformative. Most of his roles, even the awful romantic comedies, shine with just a hint of that pain, and Avery respects that, and Avery's fascinated by it, and Avery finds him awfully, shockingly watchable. And now this. What a waste. Anthony Crowley checks into Celebrity Rehab Facility. A secret life, the illicit affairs Anthony Crowley kept from his family and his fans. The illicit bloody affairs, God in heaven, like the man's required to report who he's sleeping with and when, keep a regular charted schedule so everyone can weigh in, stamp their approval. It's awful, a bit like watching a car crash. Avery's been thinking about it ever since the story broke. No matter how much things seem to change, well, this is a reminder that he's doing the right thing, living his life the right way. He only hopes that Crowley gets the help he needs, puts this whole mess behind him some day. What are you doing? I can hear you sighing away in here. Tracy comes into the kitchen, throwing her handbag over her shoulder and fussing with her hair. Oh, the sun! Nothing good comes of reading that. Don't believe a word of it. Yes, well... Avery sighs again, can't help the exhaustion that wells out of him like blood. 
He knows, he's always known, the media felt like this about people who, who want. Anyway, it's one thing to know it theoretically, and it's quite another to have it right there in front of you, punching your teeth out. Where are you off to? Seeing that, what was his name, again? What's his name should be so lucky? No, just meeting up with some of the girls. Sworn off, men. This time, I mean it. <laughs> just like last time. I'm serious. Need to focus properly on Tracy. Do some, you know, self-reflection. Might even consult the cards. Let me know what they say. Tracy puts an arm around his shoulder, kisses the side of his head. They've been roommates for five years, ever since they moved to London. Tracy's working at a handful of pubs, doing the odd psychic reading here and there. Avery's been getting work as well, not a lot, but enough to pay the rent and then some. He's done a couple of plays, a few independent co-pros, and he's getting his name out there. More and more people are noticing him, which is its own sort of terrifying. Before you go, I, I meant to ask. The illicit affairs of Anthony Crowley kept from his family and fans. Would you like to come to the screening next week? I've two tickets to the premiere. Of course I would. Most exciting thing that's happened since my divorce. Better dust off one of the dresses from my Madam Tracy days, eh? <laughs> yes, well, whatever you'd like. Avery's heart is racing. This might be a massive mistake, or it might be a stroke of genius. He can never really suss out the difference. Thing is, I was um, hoping you would come as um, my date, my date for the evening. Tracy looks at him blankly. Well, of course. Isn't that what you just asked? Drugs, violence, men. Are you... Um, are you reading the papers, following the entertainment news? You mean all the drama around Anthony Crowley? Poor bloke looks like he's absolutely falling to pieces, what with everything. She frowns, then she sits down at the kitchen table right across from him. She might give off a rather flighty impression, but Tracy isn't a fool. Not at all. What are you asking me, as? His heart beats and beats, refuses to give out. Sometimes Avery wonders if that would be easier for all parties involved. That, perhaps, if you were asked, you might say we've um, come together. Tracy says nothing. She purses her bright red lips and does not move her gaze from his face. There seems to be some... Uh, Buzz around the film, Avery continues quickly. Not that I have any expectations, but reading the way the press is treating Anthony, he can still feel the bruised, dark swelling on his cheekbone, the ghost of pain where a stone hit him so many years ago. If you came with me, if you told them we already lived together, perhaps we could... For how long? What... What do you mean? You want me to lie to your co-workers? Friends? How long? 
How long are you going to pretend? Avery laughs, or at least he thinks it's a laugh. Some sound claws its way out of his throat, and he's almost smiling, so it must be a laugh. Can't be anything else. <laughs> Forever, of course. I'll never... Tracy looks like she might start crying, and Avery quickly takes her hand, rubbing it gently. Oh, my dear, it, it's not so bad as all that. Don't listen to me. I'm sure that some day I might find... Well, or things might change. Who knows? And I love this more, don't you see? Acting is what I love. I'm far better at it than being in relationships. But it's so sad... I'm not sad, Avery insists, and and he isn't. He is making the right choice. Every day he makes the same choice, and every day it is the right one. And it's no one's business. This way, if you say that we're together, no one will even think to ask the question. Of course, if you meet someone, we'll break it off right away. I'd never stand between you and... Meet someone? Why aren't you feeling charitable? Told you I was swearing off men, didn't I? Well, I, I, I wouldn't presume it was a lifelong vow. Good Lord, no! Tracy still has an odd look on her face, but the knot of her mouth has softened slightly. I'll think on it, all right? Thank you so much. You would be helping me immensely, helping the two of us, really. But you have to promise me... Under no circumstances are you allowed to fall arse over tits in love with me. Avery's eyes go wide and Tracy cracks a smile. I've seen the films as, I know how it ends, only you have to resist my charms. Promise me, I'm not marrying another gay man, I don't care how adorable you are. You're a wonder. I haven't said yes yet. I'm going to consult the cards. Apparently... The cards are in Az's favour later that evening and two weeks later he walks into his first premiere screening with his best friend on his arm. 2018. Victoria They've almost made it to the docks when Crowley points out the second-hand bookshop. Usually Avery has a sixth sense about those places but he's distracted by the ocean. It happens to him any time he's around open water, takes him back to his childhood with a panicky sort of nostalgia. Crowley, however, is perpetually on guard for something. He prowls rather than walks, gaze constantly darting. Avery found it alarming at first, but now he just finds it charming. They're in Canada for a convention right after the release of Warlock Series 1. The panel was yesterday, and Avery shook hands and took photographs with people dressed as his character, or some approximation. It was all quite wonderful. Flattering and surprising and... wonderful. Avery hasn't done a lot of genre film or television before, doesn't have experience with fans like this. What an incredible thing. They've one day off before they're flying, together, to Austin for another convention, and they've decided to have lunch by the water. Or Avery decided that. Crowley's just humouring him, following along with his hands wedged into his pockets, 
and his molten red hair pulled halfway up and out of his face. He's all dark colours and contrasts, and Avery sometimes feels shabby in comparison. His bland skin and hair and wardrobe look like dishwater next to Crowley's black and red sharp-edged elegance. You want to go in? Crowley asks, gesturing at the two-storey shop on the corner. Of course Avery wants to go into a bookshop. Avery always wants that. All right, why not? He browses the shelves a bit while Crowley fidgets, looks at notebooks, pretends to be interested in the new arrivals section. Now and then he glances up at Avery with a fond amusement that Avery can feel, even when his gaze is turned, focused on the rows of embossed spines in front of him. Crowley humours him, Avery knows it, but it's kind nonetheless. Sometimes he wants to stop the man doing something, stop him with a touch in the middle of a scene, or over dinner, or while they're walking side by side, and say, I knew you were talented. I always knew you were cool. I didn't know you'd be kind. Of course he won't. Crowley would think he was ridiculous. But the words are still there, burning the roof of Avery's mouth sometimes. He drinks cold water, tries to ignore them. There's nothing much for antique books, but he stumbled into the poetry section when he sees a familiar yellow spine. T.S. Eliot collected poems. It makes a little shock run through him, and his face must do something, because Crowley is at his side in a moment. What is it? Oh, it's a book I once had, borrowed from a library, actually. Of course you're the type to remember every book you've ever borrowed. I shouldn't be surprised. I don't. There have been far too many. Crowley snorts. Only this one was memorable, Avery continues. The last time he saw it, it was covered in mud, pages crumpled and torn. I was young, and I liked it, rather a lot. You want it? I... He does. But he also doesn't want the memory of that book, that day, sitting on his shelf and gathering dust, like it was something ordinary, something acceptable. Oh, well, ancient history now, right? Doesn't matter. What's one more for the stacks, eh? Crowley takes it gently from Avery's hand. That's another thing Avery didn't expect about him, the gentleness. Allow me. No, my dear, you shouldn't... But Crowley is already walking over to the till, putting the book down next to a couple of bars of fancy dark chocolate he also laid away when Avery wasn't looking. Thank you, Avery says, after the whole transaction is finished. Crowley hands him back the book. No trouble, Angel. You can buy lunch. He grins behind his sunglasses, and Avery feels a bit light-headed. He should have brought sunglasses himself, maybe. It's sunnier than he thought it would be. They picked up a couple of grilled flatbreads and a carton of strawberries. Crowley refuses to let Avery pay for any of it, despite his previous assurances, and sit down by the water's edge. 
Avery eats his sandwich, and then half of Crowley's, and then they watch the boats in the harbour, weaving around each other like porpoises, like tangled nets, like hands. What seas, what shores, what grey rocks and what islands, Avery reads out loud, quietly, just to hear the words in the air. It's okay. Crowley asked him to. He doesn't have to be embarrassed. What water lapping the bow? Crowley has had his head resting on the back of the bench they're sharing, the jagged melody of his throat and Adam's apple bared to the sky. His fingers are stained a bit pink from the strawberries. Avery feels something light up in his chest. If it was night time, you'd see the spaces between his ribs shining like bolts of lightning. And scent of, of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, Avery says. At the stumble, Crowley looks over at him. The corner of his mouth curls, not quite a smile. You grew up on water, didn't you? he asks. Much of a sailor? Oh, heavens no. Avery shakes his head, strangely pleased and flustered by the question. That Crowley would ever look at someone like him and imagine he could navigate by starlight and hoist the mainsail, find true north even in the dark. The most sailing I ever did was in one of those... Avery gestures towards the paddle boats and canoes on the calm expanse of green in front of them. There's a rental place just down the beach. They pass it on their walk, and families and couples are all packed into boats together. It's been a while since Avery's been on the water, even if he's no sailor. Would you like to take one out? he asks Crowley, raising an eyebrow. That question was not supposed to be an invitation to... Activity? Crowley says the word like it's petrol, shudders a bit. But now the idea has taken root and Avery can't dig it out. We should. It's a lovely day for it. Be good to get out on the open sea. Good Lord. The wind in our hair and at our backs. The smell of brine. Avery's nautical vocabulary is drying up, but at least he's making Crowley laugh. Making Crowley laugh is a bit like receiving a weak electric shock. Doesn't happen that often. More than not, Avery gets a smirk of reluctant amusement. But when it does happen, the hairs on his arms stand on end. He feels like he could spit sparks. Come on, humour me, my dear. They rent a boat, a canoe, life jackets, safety first and they paddle around the harbour, eating dark chocolate, Avery, and complaining, Crowley, until the afternoon sun starts to fade, and there are fewer and fewer boats in the water. The light is turning the anxious pink of dusk, and Avery is distracted by a tangle of red hair that keeps getting caught in Crowley's mouth, and they're just starting to head back to shore when... when... a harbour police boat speeds by... Apparently it's a thing they have even in Canada. Anyway, the wake it kicks up is immense, and Avery sees it coming before Crowley does, only has enough time to grip the sides of the canoe before it's rocked violently, and they lean to the same side to try to balance it out, and oh, hell, they're tipping over. 
The water is a violent kind of cold. But Avery grew up on the edge of the North Sea. He adjusts to the cold and to violence rather quickly. Fuck! Crowley emerges a moment after Avery, hissing like a wet cat. Are you all right? Avery asks at the exact same time that Crowley does, and then they both nod wetly at each other. The water's only shoulder deep, and they're not in any danger, and they're close enough to shore that pulling the boat is the same amount of effort as trying to climb back into it. It's only a few minutes' work. But as they haul the boat onto the sand, Crowley suddenly turns around. Oh, shit! He's running back into the water, tearing off his life jacket, splashing around like a madman. Stop! What are you... Avery calls, panicked, contemplates going after him. When Crowley plunges below the surface suddenly, Avery does. He takes a few running steps back into the water, convinced that the other man has actually lost his mind. Crowley resurfaces, then dives again. Avery shouts at him, Antony! A name that feels molten in his mouth. Crowley surfaces, then dives, and when his hand finally shoots up out of the water, he's holding something bright yellow. Avery stops running towards him, stands knee-deep in the freezing ocean. A book, Crowley says, sloshing back to the shoreline. His hair is a knotted mess of red kelp. He's soaked to the skin, hasn't lost his sunglasses somehow, and he's carrying a book of T.S. Eliot poetry. Avery can't speak. The book, Crowley shouts again, coming closer. After you made such a fuss over it. You... Something is happening. Inside Avery's bones, in the marrow of them, you didn't have to. Can't imagine the fuss you'd make if it was lost. Crowley reaches him, hands it over. Their fingers just touch, slightly. Barely noticeable, really. And they have touched before, so many times, have had their arms around each other's shoulders in press photos, have shoved each other away during scenes, have helped adjust each other's microphones or cloaks or hair. They've touched before, but it hasn't felt like this. Dry it out standing should be okay. Yes, I know how to dry out a book. Crowley smirks. Of course you do. And Avery suddenly feels starving, like he could eat the whole world. Resign my life for this life, my speech for that unspoken. Come on, then. I don't care what you say. I'm calling us a cab. I'm not walking back in this state. Oh, bugger me, my mobile. The awakened lips parted. The hope, the new ships. By the time they get themselves sorted, get a cab, get back to the hotel, the setting sun is just hitting the horizon of the ocean. And wood thrush calling through the fog. There is a wet book of poetry in Avery's hands, rescued from the muddy ocean floor. The sky behind him is wholly golden. 2020. London. It's been a long time. I promise we're nearly there. He opens his eyes to the ring of his mobile. Oh Christ, oh fuck, oh God in heaven, it's Gabriel! 
Avery isn't ready to speak to him just now, isn't ready to speak to anyone. But he's unfailingly polite, at least he tries to be, and he never really feels like he has a choice where his manager's concerned. Were you still asleep? Gabriel sounds incredulous right from the get-go. I thought you were on this new fitness kick. When does that start? He laughs loudly. Avery's mouth twitches. Yes, I didn't sleep well last night. He'd been thinking about his last conversation with Crowley, his utter desperation to get off the phone before he said something he couldn't take back. Tickety-boo! Mind how you go! Sometimes these words just rattle loose from his skull and there's no stopping himself. All Crowley wanted was to see you for dinner. And you wanted that too. You wanted that too, you absolute coward. Well, I uh, need to give you a heads up about some uh, photos. Oh, God. Oh, God. Avery's lungs collapse like rotten fruit. Did someone see that night in the hotel room? Was there a photographer lurking outside the window, peering between curtains? How had Avery not thought to check? Could he say it had been a rehearsal? Because it was. It was rehearsing, that's all it was. Christ, the photos will be everywhere by now. His dad will have seen them. How long does he have before... before... Gabriel, I'm... What photos are you talking about? Avery tries to keep the terror out of his voice. Maybe there's a chance that he can save this, fix it, explain it away. Calm down, Abriel says, tone light and amused. Honestly, it's not that. What photos, Gabriel? Gabriel sighs. Your pal, Anthony, he and his boy toy got back together. I don't know the details. It takes a moment for Avery's mind to wrap around this, to understand the words in the order they've been strung together. His first thought is, Oh, thank God. It wasn't the kiss. No one knows. No one knows. His second thought is, Crowley hasn't got a boy toy. What the hell is Gabriel on about? Maybe it's serious this time. Mazel tough. Who cares? Thought you should know in case you get a call from anyone. Tabloids go crazy over his love life. Don't know why. The photos, Avery repeats like an idiot. Keep up, sunshine, Gabriel truckles dryly. Yeah, they're all over the internet. Nothing graphic, just that same guy from the other photos. Anyway, not much more to it than that. I've got another call in four minutes, so I'll check in with you before you fly out, okay? Okay. Well, right. And do you know what helps with sleep? Exercise. Avery ends the call before Gabriel can finish, not really hearing or caring about the rest of it. Like some sort of pathetic teenager, he Googles Anthony Crowley on his phone and waits for the inevitable. It is the same man from before, the one outside the club with the lovely hair. They're kissing in Crowley's apartment window. They're kissing outside his flat as well. He's strong-looking, angular, broad-shouldered. Not soft at all. Well done, Crowley, Avery thinks to himself. A real catch. 
Good for him. Avery would hate to think that his co-star was lonely. He deserves to be happy, to find love. He deserves someone who will kiss him in doorways and windows and not care who sees it. Someone like that. Not someone like me. This is good. Great news. Maybe it's serious. Wouldn't that be lovely? On his bedside table, Avery has a warped book of poetry that he reads sometimes when he can't sleep. It's water-damaged, but it dried up well enough. There were some bad memories circling it like sharks for a time, but then Crowley went and changed them to good ones, took the stones and made them shine golden. Avery looks over at that book and cannot bring himself to touch it. This is good. For a little while longer, he studies the photograph of Crowley's face, pressed against the neck of this handsome other man. Avery could never look like that, no matter how much work, costume and makeup put into him. He's still beige and shapeless. He's not a walking bite mark like his co-star. His jawline will never murder anyone. Neither will his mouth. Perhaps this will make it easier. If he knows that Crowley is otherwise engaged, there's less to lose by loving him, less to regret by not ever speaking of it. Avery can put these feelings away, like he's always done. He can go back to the way he used to be. He can fit in. It's like acting, right? He's exceedingly good at it by this point. He has to be. And that about brings us to today. Slow Show will continue in Chapter 6.